Hello, and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Michelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about staying solo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just immediately had a picture of the Millennium Falcon. <laughs> Can't wait for the new Star Wars. <laughs> You're such a geek. <laughs> I know. Um, wicked sci-fi nerd from way back. Okay, so the, the idea for today is, you know, we know most people listening are, are soloists or maybe they're running a small firm, but but the idea is that you can be a company of one, as Paul Jarvis would say, and still compete with the air quotes, big companies. Before the show was kind of like, you know, staying small. And I'm like, that's the idea. But I don't, I drives me nuts when soloists use the word small to define their business. I don't like the mindset there. It's not small. It's just not a lot of employees. You can do huge stuff. Like one person can do huge stuff. So I like to stay away from the word small uh, and talk about things that maybe we've done or we've, we've had students do that amplify their impact and create a big outcome, but just by being a soloist or a real small, I, I just said small, <laughs> a small number of employees. Well, if, if there's only so many, we can say petite. I right. mean, um, <laughs> well, and the, and the other thing is you always hear people talk about small business. And when somebody says that, I think about like a dry cleaner, a laundromat. I mean, this is different. We're talking about creating big ideas from a solo base. Right. There's like an, a pejorative angle to that word that I really don't like. It's like like the only businesses that really matter are the big ones. And like, that's totally not the way I see the world. Um, okay. So where, where should we start? Well, what if we started with, you know, what are some of the advantages of staying solo? You know, why, why do you want to stay solo? Like one of the things that comes to mind for me is that you get to have a singular voice, right? Your voice is the voice. You're not watering it down with partners or God forbid, a committee. It's you. It's your thoughts. You mess up. You own them, but you're able to really craft that, that voice in your business. Right. You almost have to try to mess that up. Yeah. If you listen to people who talk about leadership and trying to align all of the employees in a sort of a hierarchy, it becomes a full-time job just to get everybody on the same page where if it's if it's just you, you kind of like the authenticity, if you let it out is kind of automatic. It can just sort of happen if you let it. Right. Right, exactly. So another thing is that you can be super nimble. I suppose that's kind of obvious, but for example, in doing consulting work as a soloist, I had some sort of predefined offerings that people could approach me for, like advisory retainer was my big one, uh, my big money maker. But people would come to me and they would say, "Hey, we want to, we want, we've got this unique situation. It seems like you're the person that can help. Uh, how could we work together?" And it was funny because I, it's like, did you even read like the list of stuff? I <laughs> they probably didn't. So uh, what I would, what I was able to do was uh, I just had total freedom to engage with clients in whatever way made the most sense. And there's a little bit of a trap there too, but if we're looking at it as an advantage, I would have a framework and I had sort of uh, guardrails in place where if somebody wanted to fall too far outside of my, um, you know, the way that I chose to engage with people that I thought was effective, I wouldn't let them do it. I'd just be like, nah, you know, if you can't at least get in the lane, then we're not going to do anything. But you just had complete control over creating engagements that were more likely to be beneficial and you weren't in this sort of rigid like no this is the way we do it this is our process you have to go through our process if you don't like it forget about it that kind of thing i found that pretty pretty helpful in my business 
Well, it's freeing when you're having a one-to-one relationship with your client and you're listening to their pain points. And I mean, you have to be careful, you know, if you're a carpenter, everything's a nail, right? It's a fascinating way to help them solve a problem. There's a a little piece of my business and I, I don't do it for very many clients, but it started when some clients I really loved were having trouble with their speaking engagements and they weren't getting the money that they really should. And part of it was that they, they weren't comfortable negotiating for it. So I just stepped in and whenever they have, I don't go out looking for them, but when they have a speaking opportunity come in, I manage that. And I consistently get them way more money than they would ever get themselves. They pay me a piece of the pie. So it works out really well. But if I hadn't been listening and thinking about their problems and thinking about, do I want to help them solve this myself or do I want to help them find someone who can solve this? Yeah. It gives you a lot of flexibility. Yep. Yeah. And that segues right into the next thing on my list, which is that you can create new products and services in a night. You can just boom, you're listening to either your clients or your audience or whoever that you're in contact with and you're getting feedback from them and you can just test ideas really easily. Uh, We've talked about this before, but it definitely deserves to be on this list where you can say, huh, like, geez, a whole bunch of people are, you know, like you just said, they're not, they're not getting paid what they should for their speaking engagements. Or for me, people are just having a, a terrible time running sales interviews. They don't, it's just taking them too long to get good at the why conversation. So, okay, so come up with a, a product slash service where I sit in on the phone call, I run the phone call, and then I draft the proposal for them. And it's like a very, it's just like you, like for a piece of the pie, if the deal closes, great. If the deal doesn't close, no harm, no foul. You can observe these things and then just immediately capture the opportunity like on the spot. Yeah, exactly. And and we'll talk in a minute about how that can also get you into trouble. <laughs> um, but I think related to that too is that you can also, as you're creating those services and products, you can find ways to leverage your time and create flexibility. So it isn't that you necessarily have to do everything yourself, but as you're listening, you're going to hear those opportunities to leverage. Yes. Which I think a lot of people think, you know, oh, I'm in a solo business. I can't leverage. I have to do everything myself. Or maybe I can get a VA, which is leverage, by the way. But there's a, a lot of things you can do potentially depending on your idea and your business model to leverage your time. Sure. And if people want a whole bunch of great tips about that, go back to our Todd Tresseter episode where he talked about, I think we focused mostly on system leverage. Mm-hmm. But he's got a great book on the subject that uh, is, you know, sort of three major categories of leverage that you can create financially. He's like a financial advisor. And uh, it's great. It was, it was one of my favorite episodes. It was eye opening. Again, you're sort of sliding right into another bullet on my list, which is that if you grow like a traditional firm, if you try to grow and you get bigger air quotes by adding bodies, then you're going to fundamentally change the nature of what it is that you do. So like your day, your day is going to fundamentally change. Like when I was managing a dev shop of like at times up to 15 developers, my life was writing job descriptions, interviewing people, doing one-on-ones with existing employees, making sure that people had their hours in. I was not developing software. No. So that's fine. If you're currently solo and you really want to build a team and you enjoy that role in nurturing your team members and you're going to be an amazing boss, go for it. That's great. But if you are like me and you don't consider that to be a strong point, and I have a VA now, thanks to Rochelle, but the 
but that's totally different than payroll. Like, yeah, payroll. you're not managing her day to day. In fact, some might argue she might be managing you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. 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 Well, and then the other thing with that is, and again, it's one thing to get one person or two people. It's another thing to wind up with this large team. But when you have that overhead, all of a sudden you have to sell. Oh, the price and, is incredible. Yeah. And where I see the, the, it is a problem is especially in graphic design shops. Because usually some of the best firms, they're small, right? They have a, a point of view and you can see it in their work, even when the work is done by different designers. So all of a sudden you're like, well, gee, I've got five designers. I've got to keep them busy. So maybe I need to take this assignment, which the client starts to micromanage. You can't exactly get what you want. It's a challenge. Whereas if you're using contractors who just kind of come in and out and you don't have a commitment to them per se, you've got a little bit more flexibility. Mm -hmm. It seemed like when you were describing this idea to me before the show that one of the angles was how to compete with bigger players. So for me, in my consulting career, when I was doing uh, basically mobile strategy consulting, it was like how to leverage mobile, this new platform that's, that's sweeping the nation, how to leverage this in your Fortune 500 business or like your big, huge business. And like the, and the, the kind of clients I would work with, you know, it was like Staples, Time Inc., T-Mobile, Nokia, like big companies. They're the kinds of companies who normally feel comfortable spending $3 million with Deloitte on stuff like this. And I consider this an advantage because I think it's fun, uh, but other people might not see it as an advantage. But one of the advantages of staying small like that is that you can compete uh, with those big players by going super, super specific, which to me is really fun. So with a, as a soloist, you can get way into your thing, way, way into it. And when you do that, you become like the expert witness for this thing. You become famous as the go-to person for this really hyper-specific area of expertise. And nobody can touch that. I don't care how many MBAs you've got that are just fresh out of school. Nobody can compete with you if you want to go super deep, like where I went basically. So, or, or like whatever your thing is, like if you want to do it, you can and still command really high, very profitable fees for workshops or advisory retainers or ongoing things, project oversight, uh, training, all of these things that you can do when you're recognized as the essentially world leader in this very specific thing. When I say world, I don't necessarily mean globally, but in the in their world. Right. You're part of the world. Well, plus what can happen is those big firms are made up of individual people and those individual people may refer you. Yes. It happens it, way more often than you think if you're becoming known for, for doing your thing and you're creating alliances with, with some of those folks. They either hear of your work or they see your work, either because they come in before or after. Yes. There's this other thing. I'm almost afraid to say this out loud. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the other one of the other advantages of going solo is that there, there is a quiet place in your head that you get to keep. And yeah. And, you know, I loved when I built a company, I had great people, but my head was always full with all their stuff. Oh yeah. And, and they weren't complainers either. I'm talking about really people who are really good at what they do, but everybody always had an idea of how we could make things better. And it's like, well, you want that, but that, that your head never gets a quiet place. And I think with clients, 
the angle was always, you know, what are we doing for the client? I was less interested. I was interested in creating the business, but I was less interested in worrying about how many layers we had and all that stuff than I was about what we were delivering. My passion was in the delivery piece. So yeah, I think you can keep a quiet place in your head when you're a solo, which is harder when you have a lot of people you're working with. I know several business owners, people that have, you know, just maybe 10 employees, but you know, real full-time employees and, and just things happen all that. It's like, you've got this extended family and stuff happens to them. And, you know, like yeah. uh, the husband's sick or somebody's got a problem with their house. And like, I don't know, that stuff affects me. Like, yeah, it starts it's to, it, it's, it's a lot. It's just a lot. I don't have the emotional maturity to like, <laughs> <laughs> to like be that kind of boss. It's just, it's just, uh, there's a, but it's similar to your point, which is that like all of these people's lives are, are, you know, like you're seeing these people more than your spouse probably. And it's like, right. it's a lot. It is. And there's a, for me, and I like the, the emotional maturity is a great comment for me. It was, it was like, I have this, I was duty bound, honor bound to make sure that they were okay because they signed on with me. Every single one of them could have gone with a big firm and they would have had a big ass salary and they wouldn't have to worry where their next project was coming from. When they signed on with me, they got paid when they worked. So it was different. And I always wanted to respect the fact that I was responsible. I had a responsibility to them. So that's what I mean by that place in your head. I mean, it's like I always carry the client responsibility. But for some reason, there was, it was the employee thing just after a while got to me. I, I carried that for six years. And then it's different when you're inside a big firm. I did that. And that was fine. No problem. But when it's your own firm and you really need to make sure everybody eats and they don't just eat, but you know, they get steak once in a while or some lobster. It's uh yeah, it's a challenge. Yeah. Now you go from worrying about your mortgage to worrying about 10 mortgages. Yes. Yes. So you mentioned in there, you mentioned the word layers. And that was another thing from my list, which is that you aren't insulated and for better or worse, you're not really insulated from the clients or your customers. So you know what's going on. Like you get the feedback. And, you know, earlier I talked about, you know, you can pick, it's easier for you to pick up on opportunities and then act on them. These things would have to bubble up through layers and layers of employees. If you had, you know, if you had like even two tiers, you know, like a, a, you know, three direct reports and then maybe 10 underneath those three, then it's like, you're not going to be, you're not on the front lines anymore. And you're going to, you're just not going to catch all the opportunities. You're not going to see them. And you well, have you're to, vulnerable. Oh, it, like, oh, that's funny. Why do you put it yeah. like that? Well, I think most people think, oh, you're a solo, you're vulnerable, you're, you're hanging out there. I think you're vulnerable when you have these teams of people that are representing you. It's great. If you chose the people well and you give them the right tools, you're fine. But if you get the wrong person in the role or you're not giving them the tools they need to do their job, you are vulnerable to their messing up that, with clients. Yeah, that's super true. I didn't even, yeah, that's the dark side of what I'm thinking. With the, the, the bright side is like, there's these opportunities that are just falling on the floor that you're not hearing about because someone who's farther down the food chain might not even recognize it as an opportunity. It's more of a complaint, you know, like, oh, the customer's complaining again or whatever. And, and, that, and then your example is like, well, if they're, and then even worse, if they're misrepresenting you in some way that you're not not yeah, and boy, do I have stories about that. You know, <laughs> people showing up on site in sweatpants, like, are you serious? <laughs> the things you 
didn't think you had to tell somebody exactly. to do. I need yeah. to tell you to put on jeans. <laughs> like actual actual pants. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Um, so we touched a little bit on competing against the majors, you know. So if you're in a consulting space and and you're going up against some big names that have a deep bench. What are some things you've done in the past to kind of address that, you know, if you want to call it a concern or that David and Goliath kind of match up in the proposal stage or in the sales phase? Well, I usually just tackle it head on because you can, I was starting to say you can usually tell if that's important because they probably wouldn't be talking to you if it was at the top of their list. But you have to expect that, especially if you're consulting to a corporation, somebody's going to ask the question. Right. Why do we go with Joe or Jane? They've got no bench. Whereas if we go with, you know, Deloitte or whoever, they've got a bench. I would take it on right up front and say, yeah, I'm, I'm a soloist. I'm proud to be a soloist. And this is what that looks like for you. This is how I work. This is how quickly you'll hear from me. Here's the, the touch points. I mean, you know, you go through all of those things. And if, if it's going to be a problem, it's going to be a problem. And you just move on. But I would address it right up front. <laughs> I would just say, well, I mean, if you want someone that's been named in multiple million dollar lawsuits, go with Deloitte. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to trash talk the competitors. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, yeah, it's like, and that's kind of my answer too. If you're even considering that option, I'm not the right person. Yeah, exactly. They haven't defined what it is that they really want. Although sometimes if you're doing, I don't know if this is true in development, Jonathan, but if you're doing change work for an organization and change can look like a lot of different things, there often are pieces of the assignment that they can chunk off to a solo and that they want to. So I would argue that you could still, again, depending on the kind of work that the person is doing, you might still take that meeting anyway, because there may be a piece uh, actually, I just remembered a, a story from uh, when I had my company, Sears. We called on Sears because we knew some of the top people in the, the human resource function at that point. And they were like, look, we'd really like to use you, but, you know, we're using Hewitt and Mercer and Towers. We're using all these other people. But he said, when we find something that, that we think you would be okay for, we'll give you a call. So maybe three months later, they called us and they said, well, we have this little business unit we're starting and we need some help. And so they're describing this thing for us. This was a huge assignment. This was like, I can't remember what it turned out to. I want to say two or $300,000, but we knew at the front end it was going to be about a hundred thousand, which was a big project for us. And he said, oh, it's too small to bother those other guys with. And it was right up our alley. It was exactly what we did. We did great work for them. They loved us. We made a lot of money. It was fantastic. But it's, again, it was because we carved that space and said, this is who we are. This is what we do. We're not the big boys, but, right. but we're something special. Right. Yeah, that's exactly it. You you said it. You carved out a space that was very specific. And when those specific need comes along, then you're the obvious choice. He liked us. He wanted to help us in some way. And, and a lot of times people want to help you. And when you're a solo, you can really engender different kinds of support because they like you. They don't like your employees, right? They like you. They come to know you, like you, trust you, respect you, and you develop that bond. And it's really hard to do that when you're inside a larger organization, even if you're running it. Right. Yeah. So if you're, yeah, right. So especially if you're like the face of the organization and it's a bigger organization, then you've got this thing where it's like, okay, 
this used to happen in the firm I worked in where the owner was a rock star. He was like author of books, magazine editor, blah, 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 like right down the list, keynote speaker, all that stuff. But he couldn't do all the work. He didn't do hardly any of the work. He like he would jump in like where someone was really stuck. Like he was great at what he did, but he didn't really do it all the time. He barely ever, in fact. So, you know, he had to form out the work to other people. And so people would come along and they'd be like, well, we want you. And mm-hmm. like, yeah. well, you know, I don't, I don't, you can't have me, but you, I've got these great people you can work with. And it's like, eh, well, I don't know. He was smart. Um, in his case, he endeavored to make the people who work for him famous also. Mm-hmm. So he was a good guy. Some, oh yeah, he was great. He was great. Great mentor. So when people come along, then you're like, oh, well, we've got this stable of writers that, that are great at this. Like five of them have written books on this stuff. So it's not just, it wasn't just him. I was one of them. And of course I ended up leaving. So you've got that problem. It's like, oh, you make this employee famous. Then they go start their own. (laughs) (laughs) If you're going to go with that model, you've got to, that's the price you pay. Yeah. That's the flip side. It's just another example of like the complexities of managing a bunch of people. And like, if you're, if your face is the one in the video that everybody loves or the book that your name is on the book that everybody has on their desk covered with coffee stains, then when they come the door eventually to hire you, they're going to want you. And when they, if they're shuffled off to junior employees or something like that, then it's like, mm, you know, it's like, ugh. the other thing I, I, I want to make sure that we mention is this idea when you're solo is that you can constantly refine your point of view. And I think, you know, we've talked about point of view a lot and, and it's around, you know, your approach to your big idea. But what I love about being a solo is that you can constantly play with that. It's always in motion. You're not trying to turn around a cruise ship. Like if you take one of these giant firms and they try to shift their viewpoint on something, oh my God, it's painful to watch. It's just painful. But for us, we can navigate that really easily. Well, that that actually brings up a slightly, another opportunity related one that's slightly different. Because before I was talking about um, recognizing opportunities in your client base and in your audience that you can then immediate, immediately capitalize on, like in a weekend, or you can create a new sales page for this new thing and start to test it. But you can also respond to opportunities in the marketplace or the landscape much more quickly. Like, again, like the turn of a dime, you can say like, you know, boom, new regulations uh, in Washington that affect accessibility concerns for credit union websites, something like that. Just feel like I'm on this. It's going to take Deloitte or McKinsey. It's going to take them 18 months to create some (laughs) kind of answer to this if they ever even do. Mm -hmm. But boom, I can start recording videos on it, you know, on Monday have five of them out by Friday, be sharing them with whatever, the head of CUNA on LinkedIn uh, the next Monday and be having a sales call on Wednesday. That is the beauty of the time we live in right now because even 10 years ago, that was harder to do as a solo. You could still do it. 20 years ago, you couldn't do it. So it's that we have so many advantages as soloists that anybody in, in even a mid-sized firm just can't even touch. I mean, something as simple as, all right, your computer dies or it starts to get slow. What do you do? You go out and buy a new one, right? If you're in a big firm, you've got to figure out, you've got to get in the queue and they're going to give you a new one when they're good and ready to give you a new one. It's, I mean, it's little things like that, but you're going to have typically better technology at your fingertips, which sounds impossible, but usually is true than somebody in a big firm. 
Yeah, but big firms bill by the hour, so they like slow computers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to stop bashing. I was gonna say, I'm not touching that I've one. I've been fighting Deloitte for 10 years. so. Um, and, <sighs> and my very best friend in the whole world works there, so I, I consider myself, I have permission to goof on them. I've gone through my list. Are there other things that you had? There was one, I guess. I mean, we've sort of hit this is that your client is always dealing with the number one person, right? When it's you, they get you. And if they're worried about something, they can reach you. They can talk to you. There is, there is an intimacy level, I think, with when you're doing consulting with one to one clients that is different than it is when you're a member of a big firm or you own a firm and have employees who are serving the client versus you. It's a different role. So if you have a problem with a client and you're not really dealing with the client that much of your employees are, then you step in. That's a particular role. But when you're a solo, you know, you're it. Right. I actually had that as a headline on my site when I was doing consulting. It was like, when you hire me, you get me. When you hire a big firm, you get a salesperson that makes you a bunch of promises and then they shuffle you off to a bunch of junior developers who are learning on the job at your expense. So if that's what you want, <laughs> go yeah, for it. Go ahead. <laughs> if that seems like the safe option to you, be my guest. You're the mighty mouse option, right? Da -da -da. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not uh, singing now. I know right. I did that in the pre-show, but no. Sorry, dear listener, you missed it. <laughs> So let's talk about like, what do we have to watch out for as, as solos? Mm. So the number one thing for me is if you're doing primarily service work and you haven't expanded your offerings to include things that are low touch sales and delivery, like courses or workshop, you know, one day workshops or books and those, and you're just doing service work, then, you know, like one-to-one -one with a client and you then it can be hard to carve out time to continue marketing and keep attracting new leads for whom you'd be a great fit. And it's especially bad when, you, when it works and you get a whale client who comes in with a huge opportunity and they, they're going to be like an amazing logo to add to your stable of, of happy clients. And they, and, and it's a long-term engagement. And over time, you can start to all kinds of things can go wrong. They can start to treat you like the longer it goes on, the more like an employee, they're going to treat you less like um, a respected partner, less like an expert. They're going to start to look for things for you to do because they're paying you anyway. And they start to give you lower and lower value work. They can come to dominate your week. And you, again, you don't have enough time to keep blogging or keep doing your podcast or keep up with these other things, you know, these sort of thought leadership activities. Is that what you were thinking or is it something else? Oh, yeah, it's they, they become a time suck and you maybe you're making plenty of money with them. So the money isn't the issue. But then you start to say, am, do I really have a business or am I just really an employee for hire under a different name? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's really easy to uh, miss the fact that your leads are really starting to dwindle. And then when that client, your project contact moves on to another position or another company and, you, and they get replaced and all of a sudden, who's this guy? We don't need or this gal. We don't need them anymore. We want to bring in our own people that we trust. And like all of a sudden that client disappears overnight and you haven't had a lead in six months and you end up in the feast famine cycle because you got comfortable with the whale and you know, that, that kind of thing. So that, that can be, that is certainly a, a risk. It's a temptation to take self-discipline to avoid it and to, you know, maintain 
uh, a protected part of your schedule where you can engage in the building your business activities that you have to stick with. Yeah. I mean, we were talking about being vulnerable. Having one whale client makes you hugely vulnerable. It's not unlike being an employee at an organization minus the rights and privileges you get as an employee. I mean, the reason that some people go out into business for themselves is they don't want to rely on a single employer. So the last thing you want to do is hang out your shingle and wind up with one client. <laughs> right, yeah. right. It's the worst of both worlds, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's like, yeah. you're. oh, now you're an employee with no benefits. <laughs> exactly. No legal rights either. Yeah. Yeah. There's another thing yeah. that can happen with whales that it doesn't, it, I don't think it happens every time. Sometimes it can be the opposite, but but sometimes what can happen is you've got this area of expertise. You're good at this particular thing. You've gone way deep. You've specialized and you're world-class and you get, and you land this whale client and they've got some version of this problem that doesn't make you better at solving it. There's something about it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So your education kind of stops and you, you learn their problem inside out, but it's nobody else's problem. Now I've seen this, I've seen the flip side of this too, where somebody, where a whale client has a really amazing cutting edge. Um, that's probably what the difference is. So like I've had whale clients that are very cutting edge about their technology and therefore me helping them is keeping me on the cutting edge. But I've had other ones where their laggards, their, their real problem is that they haven't modernized their systems in 15 or 20 years. And so we're just like cleaning up a mess. It's like, a, it's like, it's like what's that company that comes in when your house is flooded and they, they can make it? <laughs> never, never happened. You're right. Really doing this like gigantic, it's a big job and it takes an expert to do it right. But like something like a massive data migration or something, it's like, I'm never going to do this again. I hate it. Uh, I'm not building any extra expertise here. Um, and what ends up happening at the end of that, it could be, it could easily be an 18 month to two year long project where you haven't really been keeping up to date with other things in the industry. Cause you haven't had time. You haven't been doing any marketing. And now you're like, Whoa, I'm kind of not cutting edge anymore. Like of my skills have dulled. That's a insidious kind of potential problem. Well, and I think it's not just people in, in development and technology. I mean, what can happen if you're in another specialty is when you're really getting into a client, you can get into a really dysfunctional situation where the client doesn't want to change it. So you wind up working. I mean, every group is dysfunctional on some level, but you wind up having to work with that dysfunction in a way that really isn't efficient. And I don't even mean efficient in terms of getting it done quickly. I mean, in terms of getting it done with talking to the right people, making this change work its way through. But that dysfunction tends to grow over time rather than to get smaller if they're not taking your advice to fix it. So it, I just think it, it creates all kinds of problems and you just sort of get wrapped up into their dysfunction instead of really worrying about keeping up your craft and using your craft to make them better, to transform them versus just sort of dealing with what they have and going, oh, well, maybe we'll get a slightly better outcome versus the transformation you probably signed on for. Right. Which is, it's a big bummer. And, but yeah, it's like getting stuck. It's like now I'm spending all my time doing politics, which isn't my thing. You know, so, okay, do that for three years. You know, it's like, Ugh. yeah, like, are you better at your job? Probably not. Yeah. 
Yeah. And again, you know, it depends on your expertise and how you want to use it. I mean, I think the the theme here is that, and I think of a whale client as one that's taking over your time, not just that they're big, that they're an outsized portion of your revenue. And it's just, it's it gets dangerous for all sorts of reasons. And there's, I think, especially if the practice that you're in is one that is really a long-term relationship. It's not where you're kind of dive bombing in, doing something and you're done, but it's a long-term thing. It can get really easy to just lull yourself into that whale because it's so easy. It's so seductive. They pay you. They're mostly happy. You don't have to be trying to sell your services every five seconds. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a dangerous sort of, um, narcolepsy <laughs> yeah it is like that it is like that you're slow it's like slowly falling to sleep it is like that and it's it's um it's tough to notice it's tough to notice it's almost like you want to because i look back and i had probably my worst year in business was 2012 for a combination of reasons but one of the reasons was i was probably three years into a whale client and it was like oh man and i i ended it actually which thank goodness i did they were great i love this client they were great but at a certain point it was just too much travel and we had a new you know our second kid and i was like oh, i can't keep doing this you know this is great money the writing was on the wall though they were looking for things for me to do like the real high value stuff that i did at the beginning which they ended up getting patents on that was long gone and toward the end it was like oh maybe we should ask stark what he thinks about this screen you know, <laughs> you know right go away i did all of the things that you shouldn't do all the things that i learned the hard way it's like i wasn't doing any marketing in that period i stopped speaking doing speaking engagements and it was like and my lead flow trickled down to nothing without me noticing it that was this that's the scary part yeah yeah I hear you. Well, so maybe we should talk about the other thing, which is I think you always have to be marketing. Some would say, you know, ABS, always be selling or as opposed to always be closing. But it's I think you have to always be marketing. And it, with the kind of listeners we're talking to here, what we're talking about is, you know, doing blog posts, doing articles, podcasts, books, you know, what, whatever that looks like for you is you have to always be doing that. Always, always, always. No matter how busy you get with the whale, you can't change that underlying schedule of delivering your expertise out to your audience. Yep. You're stealing from your future. It's like, I, I like ABT, always be teaching, especially for a soloist, because you can do that. You can put yourself in this role of like teacher or instructor, like, hey, here's this thing. It's going to help you. And I'm just, I'll, I'll teach you how to do it. You just read my book. Just watch my YouTube channel. Just listen to the podcast. Because mm -hmm. some of my developer people don't like the idea of always be selling. Selling. You. <laughs> I <laughs> said <people>. marketing. <laughs> or marketing. Which some marketing. people view as a euphemism for sales. but Yeah, they don't know the yeah. difference. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess the other thing, this is a pet peeve of mine, is, is that we soloists really have to be careful about using the royal we. So it's, I can't tell you how many times I look at a website for a soloist and it's we, 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 and, but it's really just one person. And I know they're trying to make it look like they're bigger, but they're not. And so that's when I say, just own it and use I. When you have other people added to the mix, then you can say we. Totally. It's so confusing. It's like just rolling over and giving in like it's almost like you don't believe that anybody would hire a soloist, so you're gonna 
I mean, it's not lying, but it's artifice. It's yeah. There you go. And that's what that's. I mean, we've talked about this a bunch of times, but that's what building trust online on your website is all about: being transparent, being who you are. I mean, the best version of you, hopefully, but it's being who you are, giving to your audience, and not hiding behind something. To me, the we when it's really an I is hiding, and it's it's like the guy with a comb over. Right. Everybody knows there's a comb over. Right. Just shave it off. <laughs> Show us Own your it. head. Own it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, on that note. <laughs> <laughs> well, I still have another one, though. Okay. Okay, so with solo, I think you have to develop this muscle. It's like the no muscle. You have to learn how to say a really firm no. And it's the counterpoint to what we were talking about before. Because because you can create all these different custom engagements and multiple service levels doesn't mean that you should, right? So the key is to be able to know when to say no. And you don't even have to know it in the instant. You know, you can go off and think about it and decide whether this is something you want to invest your time and energy in. But you've got to be able to say no. Or, I mean, you're just going to be so unhappy with the, the pile of work you've created for yourself. That is the the other side of the coin with being able to create new things on the di- on a dime, you know, overnight, is that you can end up with too many things. We're talking about like the advantages of staying solo. Here's something that I think is important to have if you're going to be successful as a soloist is the that organizational gravity that you don't have because you don't have a big team of people who think a particular way because that's what you've been telling them. And you know, like you can't shift the Queen Mary real fast. That's got pros and cons. So if you are a skiff and you can skip around like crazy, you need to have a really clear objective and strategy that you're using to achieve that objective so that when you're deciding what to do and what not to do or what to quit and what to double down on, you've got some kind of litmus just because it's just you and you know maybe you've got some sounding boards, maybe you have a coach, something like that. But in general, it can be, it can be easier when you don't have an organization to go in circles. Yeah. I, I just had somebody send me an email yesterday and they said, I just fired this client and I'm so relieved. And what I realized is I've been doing the thing that I did with this client for 12 years. And if I didn't stop now, 12 years from now, I was still going to be doing the same thing. And it inspired, I had nothing to do with this. This was some, something that somebody told me they had done, but it, it was fascinating to me that the, the empowerment that came from that from being able to look realistically at a situation with a client and how they'd created this and said, you know what? No, no. And should that person have said no 12 years ago? I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs of their business, but they're saying it now. And that's the key is you've just got to keep looking at what you're doing. So you know whether or not it's going to work for you. Yeah. And you can, as a solace is much easier to do that. Yeah, you can always, I'm not saying we should go around willy nilly firing clients, but you can. There are reasons sometimes not to pursue a particular line of work or a particular aspect of something. It's not about the client as a person or an organization, but about the service that you're providing and how it's working or not working for both parties. Yeah, in the software world, there's like a real clear uh, inflection point where you go from designing the new software to maybe building the new software and then launching the new software. And then it's like, okay, now we want you to maintain it. It's like, no, nah, I don't do that. Oh, no. <laughs> right. 
it's tempting though because you're like, oh, that everybody tells themselves, well, if I'm if I'm doing maintenance for them, like every you know whatever every month they're they're still paying me to do maintenance. Then when a new project comes up, we'll be the first people they ask, and and that happens sometimes, but businesses can go for like 10 years before they need another, before they're willing to invest in another huge new software application. Not, not all the time, but you know, five years anyway. So it's like, uh, you know, you got to say to yourself, like, do I do maintenance? No, I don't. And then at a certain point with me at a certain point, I said, I'm not even building this stuff anymore. I'm just going to design it. Well, it's a whole different business model. Have have you heard, um, David Maester's the, the, the kind of four business models in consulting? No. Okay. So there's, he did it on this healthcare theme. So uh, there's the pill factory, right? So, so imagine, you know, this is a factory making the pills, you know, it it has to be within certain tolerances. So that would be like a Deloitte. And then there's uh, nursing or nurse. So you've got some technical knowledge, but there's a lot of hands-on. And so, and there's a lot of recurring kinds of things. So that could be one that you just mentioned. There's also a therapist model, which typically you've got multiple people banding together and they're, it's not that they're interchangeable, but they're all senior. There's no leverage, right? It's that person is delivering the service. And then you've got the brain surgeon and the brain surgeon usually has a small team, but he or she is the one that is known everywhere for this expertise. And people come from, from miles around or from other countries to come and, and be seen by this person. I'm trying to remember which book this is in. I don't think it's in Trusted Advisor, but he talks about this and how, depending on which approach, you build your firm in different ways. Yeah. I mean, like that, right. And boom. Like that, that lands really hard. Like if you imagine, it's like, oh, that's interesting, interesting. But then when you get to the point of like, okay, but what do you actually do to build a business? Like compare the difference between the pill factory and the brain surgeon. It's like completely different activities. Exactly. Exactly. And everything's different. Marketing's different. How you pay people, how you promote them. I mean, Maester does a lot of, or did, he's retired now, but he talked a lot about how to run a firm. That's his thing. But in terms of marketing and positioning, this makes a huge difference as well. Yeah. And I see people all the time who aren't clear about which one they are and they kind of try and do both, which just fights with itself. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's, it's painful. Hmm. Cool. All right. Have we got, have we covered all the bases? It's all the ones I can think of. <laughs> <laughs> Same here. I would say we're both big fans of staying solo and I don't see any reason why it needs to limit your income or anything. I mean, but it's important to know like whichever one you are, you know, if you're going to be the brain surgeon at the pill factory, at least know that and then understand what the, what the objectives are, the strategy is and the tactics you're going to use to achieve the objective because uh, they're going to be different in every case. So whether or not you want to stay solo or build a firm or whatever it is, just recognize that the things that you would do to build one versus the other one are very different. Exactly. Exactly. Just be clear. All right, folks, that's it for this week. But before we go, we wanted to let you know that we're very excited for our 100th episode, which is coming up in just a few weeks. And we have an amazing, I'm so excited (laughs) about the guests we have coming up that I cannot even tell you. But we're not going to announce that yet. We just want to let you know that episode 100 is going to be a very big episode. And we're uh, looking forward to getting your feedback on that when it comes up. All right. So that's it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. We hope you join us again next time for The Business of Authority. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.